Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, and I am a nerd. Now, I know it's fashionable to identify yourself as a nerd nowadays, but I am an OG nerd. My nerddom goes way back. When I was in elementary school, someone asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I said, a cyborg. <laughs> Most kids do, right? Now, I, I didn't need to go the full Borg or anything. And just a cool robot hand like Luke Skywalker had, that would have been plenty. That said, Star Trek is still clearly superior to Star Wars in every respect. <laughs> I think it's in the Bible somewhere. Um, but to this day, I wear a smart ring, a smart watch. I don't think this wrist has seen the sun since fourth grade when I got my Casio piano watch. And it just got each one since then. Um, I, I was one of the first and only people to walk down the street wearing a pair of Google Glass. It still works. Um, and I even have one of these bad boys, the Epson Muverio, or as my wife calls them, birth control. Uh, but I, I like this stuff, and why is it you need to know, me, know this about me? Um, the reason is, uh, my topic today is social and other digital forms of media, and I need you to understand that I don't come to this topic from a position of fear or ignorance. Uh, I, I like this stuff. I think a lot of good can be done with these tools. I've been doing social media since the early 90s on my brother's BBS server with a dial-up modem. Uh, I, I like connecting with people online. Uh, but if there is anything that uh, our so societies experience with social media as it exists now over the last 15 years or so has taught us is that there is also a lot of danger and a lot of challenges uh, online when we engage in this stuff. And frankly, many of us are not up to that challenge. Now, you may say, I'm not on Facebook. I don't have a Facebook account. Well, you would be in the minority. 69% of American adults have one now, and that number keeps going up. And if you're not on Facebook, you're probably on another platform, Twitter, LinkedIn. You probably use Google to search for things. You probably get news feeds online, get your news information largely from digital sources. You probably have a smartphone that you have difficulty putting down from time to time. And you use text, email, uh, instant messaging at work. The, the fact is, all of us are a member of this artificial digital environment, and it is only getting more and more immersive. Apple, for example, is dead set on replacing your iPhone within the next five years with something like this, something that you wear on your face, so that you don't even have to pick up the phone anymore. You're just going to look around, and it's all going to be there. Everything's going to be digital. Um, Facebook, just a few weeks ago, decided that they are no longer, they said this, this is, they are no longer a social media company. They are a metaverse company. 
What does that mean? They, they, they envision us all interacting on social virtual platforms. We're all working from home right now, Facebook says. Why can't we do it wearing one of these? Right? And seeing each other this way. Wouldn't that be great? Well, that's, that's the direction that we're going. So I'm not going to tell you to avoid digital media because that's impossible. And frankly, it wouldn't be wise because we're, we're called to engage and be part of the world. So rather, what we need to do as Christians especially, everybody could benefit from this, but we as Christians especially are called to interact with this media with wisdom. So how do we do that? Well, carefully uh, is one thing, but what's the, what's the problem? What, what, what are we trying to avoid? What are we trying to be conscious of? Fundamentally, it boils down to power. And in two respects. So power is the ability to act or produce effect or cause something to happen or to have control, uh, authority, or influence over others. And that's relevant here to this discussion in two ways. The power of our words to influence others and the power that others have over us. Jesus says, we'll be judged by our words. Matthew 12, tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. I think this needs to be printed on every cell phone. And by what standard will we be judged? Mark 12, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, uh, and all your strength. And the second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this lines up really well with what we as Christians believe matters in life. Uh, both the Bible and physics tells us that everything physical will eventually fade away, will burn away. Uh, nothing physical in this world is permanent. The only thing that truly lasts forever are spirits, and that's the spirit of God, the spirit within us. And further, we believe as Christians that the way we interact with each other in this life, the way that we interact between ourselves and God in this life matters and makes a difference for how we spend that eternity. So we are especially called to be conscious of how we are affecting other people, other spirits, other souls around us that are going to live forever in one, way, one respect or another. We believe our words have eternal consequences, and we ought to act like it. Colossians 4, live wisely among those who are not believers. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Stuart McAllister was up here on the stage a few weeks ago and talked about how a random, gracious, and attractive word from a Christian ultimately led to him reevaluating his life and coming to faith. What if that Christian had been engaged in a Facebook argument with him instead? Do you think the same result would have happened? Unlikely. Our words have power. Proverbs 18, the tongue can bring death or life. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. Social media amplifies the power of our words. It gives us a platform so that more people will hear our words other than what they would have in our normal face-to-face -face community. And it gives them more power. More people can click like, click repeat, click share. Um, that it spreads to more people, and thus our words have more effect on others. They have more power. And modern proverbs tell us the problem with this. We all know power corrupts, and we all know the, the words of St. Peter Parker, who says, with great power comes great responsibility. Many of us, though, just don't do a good job of handling this power. So for God's sake, literally, for God's sake, think before you act online, before you post, before you even get online, think about what you're doing and why you're doing it. If you remember nothing else I say today, that's my number one takeaway. It is perfectly okay if you've had something to say 
that it not go online. Now, I'm going to spend the rest of my time talking about this idea of loving others and loving God with our minds online. So how do we love others? Well, every time we communicate digitally, we're already losing something. We lose tone, empathy, body language, like nonverbals and gestures, facial expressions, all the things that add content to what we're saying. Uh, Some studies say up to 90% of what we actually convey when we communicate is done with something other than the actual literal words that we say. Try watching TV sometime, whether it's a news broadcast or a show, and turn off the sound and watch what they're doing. You can usually get a good sense of what's being communicated and what's happening. A 2017 study in the Harvard Business Review found that a face-to-face request was 34 times more likely to get a positive response than the exact same email or exact same worded request in an email. In other words, you say the same thing in person versus digitally, you're 34 more times likely to get a positive response. That's whether, the, whether you're talking to strangers or even people who know you. We are naturally inclined to interpret written words in the most negative light possible, to ascribe to them the most negative tone of voice possible. For example, I've learned recently that uh, among the younger set, it is no longer okay to say okay. Now, I frequently will respond to a text with okay or even just K because I'm all about efficiency, and that is the quickest way to communicate the fact that I agree with you or I have received your message or whatever else. Um, but that there has been such experience with that word being interpreted in with a sarcastic tone that now, apparently, we are supposed to use KK instead of that. If we <laughs> Seriously, people do this. Um, that, that is supposed to communicate okay without sarcasm. Now, the first time somebody told me that, I was like, okay. <laughs> but hey, we do what we got to do. So facelessness is also a major problem online. We shoot out messages, and we never have to look the person in the face who we're talking to. Now, how many of us can think of a situation where we send somebody a text message, an email, uh, a Facebook post, whatever, uh, and you know, later we regretted our choice of words because, you know what, if I, would, if I was face-to-face with this person, I, I probably wouldn't have said it that way. I certainly would have been you know, less sharp, less sarcastic, whatever else. Uh, when we don't have to look somebody in the eye, we will naturally just shoot off our, our true feelings and usually our negative feelings uh, in a much more direct way. Now, I learned this lesson before social media even existed. Back when I was 11, 12, 13, something like that, um, I played municipal softball. And I sucked. There's a reason I went into law, because I am not an athlete. Um, and so, but, you know, it's a municipal league. All the kids got to play. So they eventually put me at catcher because they figured I could do the least amount of damage there. Uh, at least I got to wear cool gadgetry. Um, but I figured out one way that I could contribute to the team. So I, what I lacked in athletic ability, I made up for in words. I could come up with zingers. And psychological operations has been a time-honored part of baseball since the beginning, right? If you, anytime you've ever said, hey, batter, batter, swing, batter, batter, you are trying to throw the other guy off and interfere in the course of the game. So as a catcher, I had a unique platform to influence the batter. 
And I came up with all manner of obnoxious things to say to those batters. Now, to this day, I can't tell you what I said. I don't know if I questioned their parentage. I don't know if I got into their relationships or what. All I know is that it was the most obnoxious thing that a 12-year-old could think of. Okay? And it worked. These guys got all upset. They'd huff and puff, and they'd kick dirt at me. I'm like, hey, cool. They missed the ball. That's all I cared about. Right? I'm, this is a game. This is how I play the game. Deal with it. That was my mentality. Entirely coincidentally, about six months later, I started to get picked on. Uh, kids would stalk me when I'm out delivering papers, and uh, kids would pick on me at school, and I, w- I got assaulted a couple times, and I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know what these kids were, why they were doing this to me. Fast forward to the end of the story. Um, these are the same kids, the same kids that I said obnoxious things to behind the plate. They didn't forget. They, they, that left a mark, and it left a mark that lasted well beyond that game. And you know why it took me so long to figure out why these kids were harassing me? I never looked them in the face to begin with. I had no idea who they even were if I ran into them on the street or in the school hallway. And I certainly couldn't tell you what I said to them. All I knew is that they, that, that was an object, and I was accomplishing something by using those words. But it was, they weren't objects. They were people, and that left a mark. And that, descri- that experience perfectly captures how a lot of us use social media. The first sarcastic, uh, cutting remark that comes to mind, we post it, and we don't think about the person on the other side. And it's especially damaging, it's damaging all areas of life, but it's especially damaging here in the church, in the church community. There are servants of the church, the, that leaders in the church, uh, speakers across the country who have given up their careers, given up other opportunities to serve God in this way, to serve the body of Christ and build it up. And some of them, have been to the point of wanting to give it all up just because of the amount of hate, the amount of flack they get over ridiculous, uh, debatable issues, different differences of opinion. But people don't, people don't pull back. And they think, well, he's a public figure, right? He can take it. Or they don't even think at all about who's reading these posts on the other side. But there's a person on the other side that's reading that. And they're discouraged by it. Ever since the 2008 election, which is the first one where social media really played a big role, uh, we've seen that injury here in the church as well. To this day, there are people, good friends, who grow up in this church with community and other churches too, who second-guess that community just because they're sitting next to a person in the pew who they read online spewing all sorts of vile, all sorts of hate, all sorts of ignorance about people who share this person's political view. If I, we happen to see a different issue differently, that's fine. That's something that we can talk about. And we've debated that in the past, and sometimes we debate it sharply, but it's always been done in person. Now that we have social media to do this, we, we amplify the negativity that we're engaged in, that we're immersed in. We spread that out. And sometimes we target specific people some, by responding to something that they would post online. Sometimes we just throw out, out there uh, all this that we believe in, and we don't care who's offended by it. But the person offended by it could be the person sitting next to you in church. And there have been people who have given up on church community, the place that they go to to hear about God, to get reinforced in their relationship with Christ, because those people that are in that community have pushed them away with what they've said online. Now, this is inherently true of all digital communications, but social media platforms accentuate it. They expose us to more negative content, so we, our words have more chances to be cruel. Uh, they make our thoughts more negative, and they multiply the, the audience for those thoughts. 
the same time, just agreeing with everything everybody says isn't the answer either. Uh, we all know that what we post online is inherently insincere, right? Because you may, you may post a message to someone and they're like, oh, you're looking great, whatever, whatever positive message. But that, that, the audience for that statement is never just the person. It's also everybody else who reads it, everybody, one, every one of their friends. Everything that we post online is to some degree performative. And uh, for that reason, uh, it's, it's inherently suspect in terms of its trustworthiness. And uh, we also know that when something's going on negative in our lives, if, if someone has done something wrong or done something to hurt someone else, um, they will spin those facts right, in their favor. And you, you do that in a conversation too. But when you're doing it online, you can control the narrative. Because, oh, well, you know, God has called me to come do this now and without even talking about, well, here's all the people that I wronged and burned on the way to doing this. And all we see as that person's friend is, oh, God's calling you to do something great. And especially when you dress it up with God language, you got to click like, right? Because, um, because that must be God working in their lives. But we don't know. And now that person's got a bunch of likes, got a lot of support, you know, comments, hey, yeah, great for you. And now we're, we're deepening and, and joining a rift that we never even knew existed. So how do we handle disagreements online? How do we handle dealing with content that ought to be spoken to? That you know, one factor, one benefit of being in communities that we can hold each other accountable, that we can question when somebody does something they're kind of off the reservation or that, that ought to be engaged with. Uh, but doing it online only magnifies the problem. So we, then there are occasions you can engage in productive conversation, even if it's, uh, if it's disagreement online. You've got to gauge that yourself. But more, more often than not, the better response is to take it offline. Pharisees were the model for this. They used their power uh, as religious authorities to condemn wrongdoers and sinners and to simultaneously make that person look bad and make themselves look good by comparison. Jesus didn't do that. So when the Pharisees dragged the woman caught in adultery to his feet, for example, and said, see, the law says she ought to be executed. What do you think? He deflected that question to the point where they gave up, threw the rocks down, and walked away. And then he spoke privately to the woman, having already demonstrated that she's a person worthy of forgiveness, worthy of being taken seriously and not just the, the product of her actions, saying, okay, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. He didn't, he didn't start off by saying, yep, you're right, she ought to be stoned. He did the opposite. Let's put the, let's put the hate, let's put the vile aside. Now let's talk personally one-to-one and let's address your behavior. And Zacchaeus, the corrupt tax collector who's stealing money from his fellow Jews, is up in the tree watching Jesus go by. Jesus points at him and says, Zacchaeus, you are going to hell. No, he didn't say that. He said, come down. I'm coming to dinner at your house. We're going to talk. And as a result of that relationship, he comes to, to repentance. He comes to forgiveness and changes his life. Matthew 18 gives us a model for this. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person over. If you're unsuccessful, take one or two others. If that doesn't work, go to the church. But it, this is the progression. Start off on a personal level. In the social media world, that means ideally you're going to go face-to-face with that person if you have that kind of relationship with them. If you don't, pick up the phone. At a minimum, send a private message. If this is a conversation you need to engage in, talk to them privately, even if it's in a digital way. I have had the opportunity myself to engage in 
conversations like this with a number of folks just because having been online long enough, you run into things that you know, really ought to be talked about. Um, and in almost every instance, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll never, I've never regretted starting personally because that's always the better approach. And in almost every instance, it's led to resolution and sometimes even a stronger relationship because now we've, we've had that vulnerability with each other and we've come through it and now uh, we have gained mutual respect. So that's loving each other online. Obviously, there are a lot more ways that this intersects our daily lives. These are the examples that I want to talk about today. There's all sorts that could be talked about. But loving God with our hearts and minds, what does that mean online? Well, loving God with our hearts and our minds means, among other things, not allowing others to gain power over us. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Now, growing up in the church, this to me was primarily dating advice, and that's a, that's a valid application. But it means so much more. The Hebrew didn't have a different word for heart and mind like we do. When, they say, when it says guard your heart, it is guarding your inner person. There's another proverb that says, uh, as the mirror reflects the face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Uh, who you are on the inside, your heart, is the, the person that you are. And this verse says, guard that person. Guard that thought process. Be conscious of and be disciplined in what you let affect the thought process that goes on inside of you. One of my uh, favorite quotes from a philosopher a few hundred years ago, a guy named Thomas Traherne, he says, and to paraphrase, he says, because thinking is the easiest thing to do, thinking well is the hardest thing to do. In other words, you know, Descartes says, oh, I think, therefore I am, right? It's the, is what defines us as a person. The easiest thing we can do is have thoughts come in our head. And so because it's so easy, it is a very difficult thing to discipline those thoughts and make sure we're only dwelling on the ones that are edifying, the ones that are positive. And social media platforms have power over us to direct those thoughts. Now, I wrote a book on this some eight years ago now, and, and one of the things I said was, you know, social media, like any other technology, it's, just, it's a morally neutral tool. It, whether it's good or bad depends on how we choose to use it. And I'm not sure I entirely believe that anymore. Um, while, yes, there's plenty of good to do, I've mentioned that and I'll mention it again uh, with these digital tools, if you are just getting online and letting the content take you where it takes you, you're moving in the wrong direction. In order to use these media positively, you need to swim upstream. It takes effort. Now, there are only two industries that call their participants users, software and illegal drugs. There's reason for this. Follow the money. Make the, the people who make these phones that we use to interact with social media and the people who make the platforms that host it uh, spend billions of dollars learning how to suck us in because every nanosecond of attention that we give them makes them more money. They are paid for us to interact with advertising content. And people complain about their lack of willpower to avoid picking up the phone. I know it's staring at me. This is why I turned it down. But Tristan Harris, a design ethicist formerly at Google, says this. He says, the I don't have enough willpower conversation misses the fact that there are thousands of people on the other side of the screen whose only job it is is to break down the self-regulation that you have. They think all day long, and their computers with the AI software that tracks you thinks all day long on how to keep you on that screen just a few seconds longer. You ever heard of A-B testing? Like at the eye doctor, it says camera one, camera two, camera one, camera three, which is better? Computers are doing this. AI programs and algorithms are doing this constantly all day long with you 
and every one of the other billions of people that interact with content on Facebook. They are watching and learning. Okay, this made me scroll past. I'm not going to show him content like that anymore. Oh, look, he paused on that. He stopped scrolling. Maybe, maybe I'll show him a little bit more. Oh, he clicked on that. He's going to get more of this. Now, they've been doing that now for decades. They know exactly how to keep us hooked, and they're getting smarter all the time. Even text messaging. You know, it used to be you just send a message, they send a message back. Now there's the little, little ellipses, you know what I mean? Like when the person on the other side is writing a text message back to you, there's a little ellipses that pops up and, 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 and waits and waits. The little signal says they're working. So that makes me stick on the phone a little bit longer because I'm, I'm going to wait and see what the response is going to be because I know it's a coming. Um, notifications, everything. Um, the, the, every little bit of information that it gives you is meant to give you that little dopamine hit, a little bit of encouragement. Ooh, ooh, something new, something new. Um, when I was sitting here writing this message, uh, my phone was sitting next to me, and a little message popped up, a little notification. You have one new like on Instagram. I don't know that I've ever gotten a like on Instagram before, and because I, I hardly ever use it, but it needed me to know that it was there, and I wasn't paying attention to it, and that's how it works. Now, you might think this is conspiratorial, but this is all out in the open. Facebook admits that it, it, it experiments on us. In 2012, for example, uh, they admitted to running an emotional contagion experiment, which is we're going to show this many users positive content, we're going to show these users negative content, and we're going to wait and see. We're going to watch and measure uh, how much, which one gets more engagement, which one gets more shares. Which one do you think got the more engagement? The negative, exactly. We're just hardwired as people, I think, to respond to negative content uh, more than positive content. In July 2014, there are at least 10 reported Facebook experiments on users conducted without user knowledge. Do you ever wonder why you only see certain friends in your Facebook feed? Or have you ever gotten an advertisement that you were sure the microphone was listening to you because you talked about it and then the next day there it was in Facebook? It's because the algorithms are that smart. They know exactly what it takes to, to hook you in, and they can predict your behavior with remarkable accuracy. Even those uh, personality quizzes you fill out, you wonder why you keep getting those? Which Harry Potter house would I be in? What kind of potato would I be if I was a potato? You know, the, the, this stuff seems inane and pointless, but it's, there, it has a point. It is to gather more data points on you so that they can portray information in exactly the way that will engage you. So Facebook is a great place to watch videos in precisely the same way that a maze is a great place for a rat to get cheese. You get what you want, but so do they. And this has an effect on us. Uh, it's, it's hard enough on ourselves, but subjecting our kids to this is even more corrosive. Uh, our kids are drawn to community, and they're, they're, they're driven by FOMO, or fear of missing out, peer pressure, and th those are the things that drive them online, and it's the things they experience when they, once they get online. And we've all been in junior high. We all know it's a hellish experience. We all know that we're, we're figuring out how to, how to balance all these social uh, influences on us, and that it's hard. It's hard enough when you're in a school with hundreds of other kids. It's infinitely more difficult when you're dealing with uh, content and people uh, spread across the world. Hundreds, thousands, millions of people have the ability to interact with you. If you've ever seen the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, it gets into a lot of this content that I'm talking about today, and I would recommend it. But uh, there's one very short, poignant scene in that documentary, and it's a 12, 13-year-old girl doing what 12, 13-year-olds do, which is taking selfies with duck faces, putting on Instagram filters, whatever else, posting on Instagram, looking for that immediate validation. 
And she gets it. All sorts of streams immediately of comments. Oh, so cute. Like, 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 love, love, love. Um, until one guy who is probably not something that somebody who would ever interact with this person in real life says uh, just an offhand snippy comment like, oh, can your ears be any bigger? And you see her face fall because it hits her right where she lives as a 13-year-old girl. And for the rest of that movie, every time you see this girl, she's got her hair pulled down over her ears. She is self-conscious of this. And this is, the, this is what they're getting from every direction. The American Psychiatry Organization has tracked the impact of this, and it is striking. So this chart here are the rates of, uh, of depression, like clinical check-into-the-hospital-level depression, self-harm, suicide for teenage girls and young women. And it's from 2000 all the way to present. You see from 2000 up until about 2012, they're remarkably steady, if not even going down a little bit. 2012, coincidentally or not, is when smartphones and social media use really became prevalent and hit a critical mass among teenagers. Then it goes straight up like a hockey stick. Uh, even more than 100% increase. Even among prepubescent girls, like 10 to 12 years old, girls who should be playing with Barbies rather than smartphones, their rates go skyrocket 160%. Next slide, same data shows the impact of social media use directly on depression, now, tracking versus number of hours staring at a screen a day and number of hours using social media and, and things like that a day versus these rates of depression and self-harm. And you see they, they are go straight up every hour that you're on the screen. Boys are the blue line. They, they kind of rise a little bit. Girls are that red line. Shoots straight up. This is, this is the emotional contagion um, that, that spreads to our children. We need to model a healthy use of this media. Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, she will not depart from it. That uh, means a lot of things in a lot of contexts, but it's applicable to this one too. We can't keep our kids away from this stuff forever. What we need to do is sit down and work with them, do the hard work of teaching them how to use this media responsibly. Loving God with our minds also means discerning truth. Social media news is an inherently untrustworthy and incomplete source of information because we don't get the whole picture. Social feeds, these algorithms, aren't driven to present us with information that provides us with a, a basis for critical analysis. They don't show us both sides of the story. It's the same algorithm that feeds our, our, our feed from our friends, and it is designed for one purpose only, and that is to engage us. And it knows once we click on something, we're going to click on that again. If we receive one perspective and we like that, it's going to give us more of that perspective, not the opposite perspective, not anything that challenges that, not, anything, not any news that has been filtered or um, evaluated by an objective source to see if this information that you're getting is even true. It's just giving you stuff that's going to engage you. This is the echo chamber that just re resounds the same perspective until, until we don't even realize there is another perspective. We can't even imagine how someone else would have another perspective. We pick our favorite talking head on YouTube or on the nightly news, and we take what they're saying as gospel. The thing is, not even they believe what they say. They know what they're doing. Um, when they're sued for defamation, which is saying something false 
for that hurts somebody's reputation, the primary defense to that is, well, I wasn't speaking facts. I was only expressing my opinion. And so this is literally quote from a legal brief filed by the lawyers of one of the most prominent nightly news hosts out there. It says, the general tenor of the show should then inform a viewer that he is not stating actual facts about the topics he discusses, as in instead engaging in exaggeration or non-literal commentary, or simply bloviating for his audience. Given this reputation, any reasonable viewer arrives with an appropriate amount of skepticism about the statements he makes. That's, his, that's this TV host's own lawyers describing what he's saying. Certainly nobody's going to take this uh, on face value, but people do. Now, the Bible predicted that as a society, we'd be increasingly less willing to hear truth. Second Timothy, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. Uh, and in case you wonder, even if you can guess the, the host that I'm talking about, it, the people on all sides of the political spectrum make the same arguments, and there are similar legal arguments from people on every perspective. But we surround ourselves with those influences, and those, the algorithms reinforce it. And we hear it from our, the friends that post the same content. C.S. Lewis says of this about the influence of our friends. Alone among unsympathetic companions, I hold certain views and standard timidly, half ashamed to avow them and half doubtful if after all they can be right. Put me back among my friends, and in a half hour, in ten minutes, these same views and standards become once more indisputable. The opinion of this little circle while I am in it outweighs that of a thousand others. That's just how our brain works. We we identify with the community we surround ourselves with. So we need to be careful and wise about the community we choose to surround ourselves with. Now, it's bad enough that the platforms and their algorithms do this to us, but they allow any other user to do it for a fee too. Anybody who wants to spread any form of propaganda just uses the tools that Facebook and the other platforms have to target us with that information and do it in a way that will make sure that their word gets out there and spread out and be believed. Now, they usually target people that have shown a tendency to believe in any kind of conspiracy theory, and there are you know, categories of those out there. But frankly, they target Christians too. There's a reason for that. We as Christians are already a people who have identified ourselves as willing to believe in something because God said it was true, and no matter what else the world says. The world tells us that the universe came to being by itself, that life arose and evolved with, uh, completely by itself with no outside influence, and we reject that as an article of faith. So, uh, unfortunately, though, many believers take that same blessed assurance that they have about these scriptural truths and extend it to every other opinion that they have to, whether that's an interpretation of Scripture or just their political views, their opinions on whatever else. They're used to being right and they're used to having faith in that opinion and not letting anybody else tell them that they're wrong. And if they apply that same blessed assurance to what they're reading on Facebook, they're going to get uh, misled. Now, there are a number of, uh, of theories out there, a number of, of movements out there that we can talk about the comparative validity of. One that I have no problem addressing uh, from this, this platform is QAnon because it specifically targets Christians by using specifically religious Im imagery. And it is as damaging and as false as anything that you can come up with. I mean, literally, it, they, they cast their enemies as satanic pedophiles drinking human blood. I mean, coming at this from the outside, you have to wonder who could believe this, right? But they, they pick 
the, the most susceptible, and it gets repeated and repeated and shaded and cast in a light that is sort of attractive until you get into the heart of it. it. It brings people in. Your friends are sharing it. So, hey, my friends are sharing it. It must be true. But if you were to sit down and come up from scratch with a way to make, get people riled up and get people on your side, which, incidentally, I believe is exactly what happened here, you would start off by calling them pedophiles, right? Who could stand up for pedophiles? That's, that's, that's oh, horrible, horrible. And let, let's just call them satanic on top of that. We'll get the Christians all riled up. And we see the, da- the damage that's had on society. Um, in the Old Testament, prophets were killed if they made prophecies that turned out not to be true. Here, we just let it pass. So the predecessor to this whole Q movement in 2016 started this whole Pizzagate thing. You remember this? This, this was the first kind of venture into the satanic pedophile ring theory that, uh, in particular, they were, they were trafficking in humans in the basement of this pizza shop out east. And so this was terrible. Everybody needed to post about this and demand change and all this until somebody actually had the courage of his convictions and went there with a gun to go liberate these children from the basement, from a pizza place that didn't even have a basement. It gets worse every year after that. Oh, well, this leader's been arrested. This politician is part of this uh, pedophile ring, and it's all going to be exposed, and all these world leaders have been arrested, and they're going to be deported soon. Just nonsense. And it keeps getting repeated, but the people we're friends with repeat it. It lines up with a certain political view that, well, if these guys are bad, they're not just people that I disagree with politically. They're satanic pedophiles. Sure, why not? And it just amplifies the disagreement until there's no hope of reconciliation, no hope of a shared point of view, no hope of progress. It's just fighting back and forth. I've dealt with people in this community and elsewhere who have fallen for this stuff and who have repeated this stuff and shared this content on their Facebook page. Fortunately, not many, but it happens everywhere. And the response I get is, well, maybe it's true. Really? Would you rent out a billboard and plaster something on it that you didn't know was true? If not, then why would you click repeat or repost or retweet on on something like this on Facebook and spread it to millions? Where it can be spread again, including within your own friend community, and use the power of your words, the power of your influence to share these crazy ideas. What we need is a disciplined approach to determining what's true. And there are a number of ways to frame that. One that I like is from an author called Brett McCracken in a book that, called The Wisdom Pyramid. And this image that you're going to see is the image from the cover of his book that breaks down his approach to deciding how we decide what is true, what, what disciplined approach we can decide to finding truth. And it goes from the bottom up, the most trustworthy, to the top where we have the least trustworthy sources. And the, the bottom, the, the foundation of that pyramid is Scripture, which is, the Bible tells us is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking. Uh, Proverbs, one of my favorite books of that Bible, uh, is specifically designed to be dwelled on and to develop wisdom in our hearts. It says, fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. The purpose of these Proverbs is to teach people wisdom and discipline, to help them understand the insights of the wise, to live disciplined and successful lives, to do what is right, just, and fair. This is the stuff we soak on. This is where we start as Christians, is to, to take in what God has actually spoken to us directly. Next level above that in terms of trustworthiness is the church. The Bible tells us that the church is specifically designed by God. It's called by God to be a community of people that influence each other 
towards him in the right direction, to influence each other to apply scriptural truths, to understand scripture. This, is, this ought to be our safe place where we know that the people that we form relationships with here are people that we can trust and rely on. Sometimes as humans we fail in that, but that is how the church operates. And when you're in a healthy community, like I believe this one to be, you're going to get that influence. Next one up from that is nature. God, again, in his scriptures tells us that uh, he is the creator and that we can look to creation to learn things about him. Psalm says the heavens declare the glory of God and that when we go and we study uh, scientifically, we study what we see in creation, we can trust that because that gives us insight into the person who made it. We can learn about his personality. For example, in nature, we learn that nature doesn't uh, live in a post-truth era, as one article in the LA Times put it. It's either raining or it's not. It doesn't matter your opinion on what nature ought to be doing. It's going to do what it's going to do. Up from that, we have books. Uh, Books are, uh, you know, not every book, not just because something is written down. does Does that make it true? Uh, but books that are at least uh, the product of uh, focused effort by usually more than one person, authors, editors, people who have put their, uh, their attention into bringing this knowledge into uh, this one repository. And the older and more reliable and more uh, classic a book is, the more we can, we can see, well, this has influenced other lives in the past too. It, it, maybe I can get something out of it as well. And the one great thing about books is that they don't change based on who's reading them, right? A book doesn't rearrange its words to present you with the right chapter because it thinks you're going to, that'll make you flip to the next page. A book is what it is. Beauty speaks to us on an emotional level. It doesn't convey facts. It doesn't convey information. But again, beauty is something that we take out of uh, the creation that God made. God made us three-dimensional human beings. We have emotions and facts in, in a mind, and we sometimes we need just more than the pure facts in order to be moved by something, in order to perceive its value. And so we can be moved by beauty to understand something. Last is social media, the internet. Now, there's more information on here than the kings of old could have ever dreamed of accessing. And again, it is not inherently bad. But... <sighs> It's dangerous for all the reasons we've talked about. So have a plan when you interact with this media. Uh, For me, Facebook is about community. It's about sharing with people who are my friends in real life uh, what's going on in my life, learning about what's going on in their lives. Um, and that, because that enriches our face-to-face conversation, actually enriches the real relationship that we have. You know, Facebook is the uh, worst and best thing for youth pastors specifically. It's the worst because of everything we just talked about. It's the best because at least kids are sharing how they feel, right, in, in, in this form that, they, that a youth pastor can go and read. Uh, it, it, it used to be that you have to drag uh, information out of a kid to know what's going on in their minds. Now they plaster for the whole world to see. So, you know, at least, at least we have a starting point for knowing how to deal with these kids in their lives. Um, but have a plan. Don't make social media, whatever platform you're on, don't make it your default for learning anything or for sharing anything about yourself. Know why you do it, do it, and then get out. If that's our default, it's going to lead us in the wrong direction. And put boundaries around this stuff, both the devices and the platforms, uh, for our own health, our own mental health, and especially for the sake of our kids. Now we're going to put some of this into practice. 
as a church community, we're going to engage in a ritual that Jesus said, specifically, do this in remembrance of me. It's the first Sunday of the month, which is when we celebrate communion as a community. And this is, this is something that Jesus uh, commanded us to do because it, is, it reinforces the truth of why we're here, why any of this matters, because he cared enough to come live and die and rise again for our sakes, for our eternal benefit. And so we do this thing to remember that we're not here to talk conspiracy theories. We're not here to talk about politics. We're here first and foremost to lead each other and others back to Christ. So I would encourage you to meditate on that idea, why you're here what it is that, that your life is for and what it is that is influencing your own thoughts and how you want them to be driven, how you want them to be influenced. I think if we were listening really closely to what Brian was saying, we would not have heard a message that says that we need to watch everything we say as though someone else is watching over our shoulder or that... We're in a situation of control. That's not the message here. But what we're talking about is each one of us standing before God as the church and asking ourselves what it is that the world is seeing in us. I couldn't help but think in the first service and in this service as well that when those disciples sat in front of Jesus for that last supper, they looked into his face They looked into a face that I'm sure they would have seen grace. They would have seen a face of wisdom. They would have seen a face of sacrifice, of one who's centered on others, not on themselves. And they would have seen a a face of, of love. And it's that person that sat before them that the Bible tells us, among other names that in titles that he carried... He is called the Word of God. You know, I think words are important to God. I think the words that we share, the words that we forward, the words that we think as we approach and engage this fast-paced world around us is deep in the heart of God. And Jesus was the representation of that in a way that we never could be because he knew we would break each other with our words. He knew that we would spear each other with our words. He knew that many of us sitting in here today in our own minds have been repenting over some of the things we've engaged on on our phones in other ways. So this is not a Luddite message. It's not a message of being uh, against all of these things, but it's a message of what will we be through these things. We come here broken. We come here repentant, Lord. We come here hearing your message to each of us, regardless of our age, Lord that we know what we can be drawn into, that we can treat others as the faceless crowd and not as those you made with a face. And so, Lord, let us look into your face and remember, God, that you called us to be here people of grace, people of wisdom to discern, people of sacrifice to care for others even more than ourselves, and people of love. Renew that, God, in our hearts again, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a couple more quick things before we take off. First one is I wanted to mention that you could probably tell Brian has some experience in this area. He has spent many, many years understanding the legal and the ethical 
ramifications of social media. And so that's what you've heard from today. I also know this. I never want to play in a baseball game when Brian's on the sideline. Okay? We also, he's, wrote, no, he's written a book about this, and I wanted to make sure that you're aware of that. We had some copies here. He's proven to be a very popular author. Those are sold out. But you can get them online as well. Okay, so that's something that uh, he, he donated th- those copies here. We ran out, but check it out online. It is worth the read, really, uh, called What Would Jesus Post? And uh, incidentally, what the name of the message was. Second thing, next weekend, just track this. Next weekend is our homecoming weekend. We're going to have on Friday night, we're going to have a worship night, Saturday, a movie night, and then, of course, Sunday, our single service at 11 a.m. Okay, you already know the time. All right, it's going to be easy for you. We will see you next week, okay? Heavenly Father, help us to go forward today with this message deep in our hearts, Lord, that we might be people of wisdom, that we would carry that to the world, Lord, that we would do as your heart beats and asks us to do, shine your light, that people would see those good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. That's what we want to carry, God. Help us to do that. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. And the church said, amen.